The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Google Murder Castle and all that comes up are articles about serial killer H.H. Holmes. Literal House of Horrors. How scary is that? A murder castle. Completed in Chicago in 1892, this giant structure, 150 feet long, 50 feet wide, took up most of an entire block in the corner of 63rd and Wallace Streets. There's a massive drugstore, various little retail shops are on the first floor, hotel rooms, H.H. Homes, private residence, office are on the third floor. Second floor uh, appeared to be more hotel rooms, and there were a few, uh, but in reality, the second floor was a horrific prison where numbers of young women went missing, burned to death, hung, asphyxiated, suffocated, starved, sometimes released to the cellar through various trap doors and chutes where these poor souls could be subjected to more torture if they still lived before being dissolved in a quicklime pit, burned in a kiln, or dissected and reduced to a literal skeleton, the meat and skin flayed from their bones. Unimaginable horrors were committed just a few feet from tourists enjoying the 1893 Chicago's World's Fair, shoppers at the drugstore, guests being entertained by Dr. Holmes, a real-life Hannibal Lecter. That is, if Lecter was even more evil, more cunning, and more prolific in taking human life than the character in the movies. And no one heard any of their many, many screams of agony and desperation because Holmes took great care to soundproof this private hell. Had Holmes been brought to justice last year, 10 years ago, even 30 years ago, he'd be more notorious and famous uh, than the Green River Killer, John Wayne Gacy, Dahmer, all of those people, heinous monsters. But their stories pale in comparison to the psychopathic savageness of Holmes' crimes. If he even did half of what he was suspected to do. I didn't think it was possible to research a killer uh, more charismatic, brutal, and soulless, more savage than Ted Bundy, uh, but I was wrong. H.A. Holmes, uh, 
he may have been even worse if such a thing is even possible. Skip this episode. If you don't have a strong stomach, uh, skip it. If you're not among the uh, morbidly curious, definitely skip it. If you're home alone and easily spooked, because we are about to go full evil on this bloody, wicked, and diabolical edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Welcome to a pretty dark and twisted Time Suck, everybody. Thanks for choosing to hit play. Uh, this moment, and to get sucked. Thanks for letting me suck your brain through your sweet, sweet ear hole for about an hour. So let's do it. Let's get sucked. Lots of requests for this week's episode. Uh, everyone wants some H.H. Holmes. Uh, Joe Trumbauer via uh, Time Suck email. Adam King via the Time Suck email. Also Steve Heyman uh, from that as well. Eric Brooks. John Hines, a few others I'm sure I've missed, uh, Josh DeCruz uh, via Twitter, at Josh DeCruz. And um, yeah, had some funny messages sent in from some time suckers this past week as well. Uh, some time sucker updates. Updates? Get your time sucker updates. All right, first update is another flat earth update. God, I love these. I never, I never get tired of these. This was sent in from uh, Jacob Scholen. Uh, <laughs> Jacob sent me a, a link to an, uh, uh, an Imager uh, post. Uh, that's a, a really fun website, by the way, Imager, if you haven't messed around on it. And I'll, and I'll, post, I'll post the link in the episode description. Uh, and it explains why the Earth must be round and how it, even ancient Greeks knew this. And this is a very cool uh, thing. I, I wish I would have known about this when I would have uh, you know, recorded the initial episode, but that's why we have this update segment now. And basically, there, there's these two obelisks in Egypt, nearly identical, if not basically completely identical in size. Two towers, one in Alexandria, one further down south in Serene. And uh, Eratosthenes, born in 276 BC. I'm probably butchering his name. He's got one of those fucked up old Greek names. <laughs> uh, Eratosthenes, I believe it says what it looks like to me. Uh, he, re- he realized uh, that if the Earth was truly flat, both of these ob- uh, obelisks um, should have cast the same exact type of shadow at the same time of day, which makes total sense, right? If you've got this flat disk and the sun's floating up above it, the shadows, uh, you know, should be the same, should be hitting at the same time. But they don't because the Earth is curved. And, and he found out that the bigger the difference in shadows, the bigger the curve and from this difference, this dude was able to calculate the circumference of the earth before the birth of Christ, right? Way back when, he was able to use that and accurately calculate the circumference of the earth, right? So he, he which you couldn't do, uh, again, if the earth was flat. It would have no circumference. Uh, this guy also invented modern geography and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, uh, and you know, and you, have, you have people like that on the side of the, the earth being round, and then you have people like Kyrie Irving of the Cleveland Cavaliers on the side of the earth being flat. He, uh, he recently, uh, probably many of you have already heard this, recently went out and just, you know, said that he was during this podcast, a podcast that was recorded, um, by the way, this, <laughs> while he was traveling on a, on a plane. Um, sorry, I don't have the name of the podcast. I just, I didn't pay attention to those exact details. I was just like, really, dude? He was interviewed after it. Some of his teammates, LeBron James and stuff, were interviewed about uh, Kyrie's thoughts on a flat earth. And they basically were very diplomatic and said, like, he's an interesting guy. That was what they kept saying. He's, he's an interesting guy. Well, when it comes to science, he's a dumb shit, um, I think. is what He's a hell of a basketball player. He's a very uh, intelligent basketball player. He has uh, – that's what's interesting about humans to me is you can be very intelligent in some ways and very 
let's say at least uninformed in others, but he's just like, man, they lie to us. That's what he kept saying. He's like, they lie to us. They lie. Well, fuck, why? Why are they lying to us? Right? Because of the because of the NASA, the, the ice wall. Listen to listen to Billy the Kid. <laughs> listen to that. Listen to that update if you want to find out how much the ice wall would, would cost. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Fuck me, these people. Okay. Another, ep- another update uh, was about the alien extravaganza. And I, I really love this. This is from uh, Andrew Petrov. Man, thank you, Andrew, so much for sending this in. Uh, this is just, he sent in a great example of how, you know, he thought he definitely for sure had an alien encounter, actually two alien encounters, but then he found out what actually went on. And I, and I feel like this is true of alien sightings almost 100%, if not 100% of the time. Again, I am a believer. I do believe they're out there, but I've just yet to hear uh, one single story where I'm like, fuck yes, that makes total sense. Absolutely, I get it. So here's his. Uh, This is very nice. He says, how's it going, Dan? First off, love the podcast. Thank you. Uh, The structure's really great. Definitely something different from the norm, especially for a comedian. Uh, and he says, uh, so the UFO bonus episode uh, was really great. It reminded me of this time a couple years ago when I went on a road trip to this downhill skateboarding race with a buddy in so- uh, Southern California, which sounds fucking badass, by the way. I'd be terrified to do that. Uh, we were driving on, on uh, south on the 5, passing Bakersfield around 11 p.m. It was pitch blackout. We were the uh, only car on the road for at least a few miles. As you may know, the stretch of the 5 is nothing but farmland on each side. And I do know that. I've taken that drive. I know exactly what you're talking about. Very desolate. So uh, lots of agriculture, you know, just on, on each side. So as we're driving down uh, this stretch of road, under the influence of a lot of weed and energy drinks, I like the honesty, uh, <laughs> stoned and fucking pepped up, uh, all of a sudden this bright light was hovering directly next to us matching our speed. It was so dark out and the light was so bright we couldn't decipher what the object was. We immediately freaked the fuck out. Totally get it. Totally get that. Uh, Then it sped up, crossed the highway directly in front of us, matched our speed on the other side of the highway before pulling up to a higher altitude and disappearing. In the midst of freaking out, we agreed we were witnessing a UFO alien encounter. For the rest of the weekend, we put that in the back of our minds and enjoyed our trip. This was on a Friday night. Following Sunday, we're headed back on the 5 in the same area around the same time of night, and the same shit happened again. We freaked out, and we were basically tripping out on that for the rest of the drive back to the Bay Area. I probably told all of my friends what happened for the next week, for the next week or so, which I love. You're telling everybody you saw some fucking aliens, and, and I wonder—I forgot to email you back, uh, Andrew, and ask if you were uh, smoking weed and, and hitting, hitting the energy drinks on the on the way back. Uh, finally, occurred to me that I should do some research and see if anyone else experienced this. Within 30 seconds into my Google research, I found out that I should probably stop doing drugs. Uh, that's great. That so-called phenomena was actually a crop duster plane. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently, it's common knowledge that crop dusters spray at night so the chemicals don't evaporate in the heat. So, yeah, just a little story that shows how easy it is for people to overreact to UFOs because they want to believe there's something there. That or just a bunch of brain-dead druggies, and they think they got probed in the ass last night. Anyways, big fan of the show and your comedy. Take it easy, Dan. All right, well, thank you uh, very much, Andrew. That was fantastic. I enjoyed that very, very much. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, how many stories are just similar? Where it's like, you know, yeah, yeah I, I get it, man. You're, you're traveling down the road. It's dark. It's late at night. There's no one else around. You know, especially with little weed. You got some energy. So you're like got this weird mix of you're stoned, but also like hyper alert. I feel like sometimes those energy drinks can make you a little paranoid even. You're just so fucking jacked up on caffeine and, I don't know, by radioactive rat piss or whatever they put in that stuff. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you're seeing some weird lights in, in, in those little planes when they're lit up at night. You know, you don't even really actually see the plane. You just see lights next to you. 
I would absolutely. I would think that was a UFO for sure. And then, and then you, are you kidding me? You're driving back a couple days later and the same shit happens again? Absolutely. But, you know, it's a crop duster plane. <laughs> well, that's enough uh, Time Sucker updates for one show. Uh, thanks for writing those in to admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. So, H.H. Holmes. Who was he? Who was Herman Webster Mudgett? <laughs> no wonder he changed his goddamn name. Was he simply a cold-hearted businessman who knew how to make money off dead bodies? I mean, he sold many of the skeletons and sometimes even organs of his victims to contacts he'd made in medical school. Tried to make money on just about all, if not all, of his victims, you know, collecting on or trying to collect on a number of life insurance scams, stealing their life savings, etc. Or was he a bloodthirsty sadist who delighted in torturing his victims and the money was just a bonus? His murder castle did have torture devices in the cellar and a variety of rooms designed for a variety of different types of killing. Some uh, extremely slow and very painful like literally starving victims to death. Was he both? I'm going to go with the firm yes on both. I'm going to check that box uh, with a pen. There's, there's no erase in that one, no take backs. Now, dude was a psychopath, a true psychopath. If you remember from Time Suck Episode 4, Sociopaths and Psychopaths, psychopaths are dangerous. They're violent and cruel and oftentimes downright sinister. They show no remorse for their actions, usually because of a lesion in a part of the brain responsible for fear and judgment known as the amygdala. Psychopaths commit crimes in cold blood. They crave control and impulsivity, possess a predatory instinct, and attack proactively rather than as a reaction to confrontation. So, you know, a sociopath may lack empathy for other people, but they really go out of their way to harm others. Holmes loved harming others. Definitely went out of his way to do that time and time again. He was a smart dude. He could have made money in a variety of ways. Murder didn't have to be his business. No autopsy was ever done on his brain find out if he had a lesion, but lesion or not, dude was fucked up. He did not have a normal brain. A layer of mystery uh, still and will forever shroud the life of the man, labeled uh, often as America's first serial killer, because a lot of details are lost to history. Uh, all the key players and eyewitnesses are long dead, but there is plenty of horrifying details that we do know. And before we get to the juicier, macabre ones, uh, let's jump into a little mini, just a little baby timeline, a little baby Tom Suck timeline, you know, by the standard of some other episodes. Let's paint a little picture uh, of an odd boy who shortly before, you know, growing up and, and getting hung, uh, told a news reporter he was born with the devil in me. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Eighteen sixty one. Herman Webster Mudgett was born on May sixteenth. He was born in the center of a pentagram in the middle of a Transylvania forest, stabbing his way out of the womb with a small dagger Satan himself had given him. Jumping to the ground as demons and dark priests chanted his name. Herman, Majet, Satan, loves it. No, that didn't happen. But by the time this episode is over, that scenario won't seem as far-fetched as it may have just now. He was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, in the traditional way sliding out, kicking and screaming from his mother's newly destroyed vagina. Gilmington is a colonial town incorporated in 1727, and if you live there, got some news for you. 2017 dog tags are in. Oh, boy. Get your 2017 dog tags, Gilmantonians. They're here. They're here. I'm not kidding. They're finally here. It's so great. Uh, that's the most important current news. Uh, that's actually the only uh, news item uh, listed on Gilmington's official city website that has an exclamation point. It's, it's a sleepy town. 
Go to, go to gilmingtonnh.org if you want to bore yourself. Uh, the website for this little burg of less than 4,000 New Englanders fails to mention Herman Webster Mudgett. No H.H. Holmes listed at all. Huh, wonder why. Uh, Gilmington also rumored, uh, rumored to be the setting for the fictional town of Peyton Place, a novel that was on the New York Times bestseller list for 59 weeks beginning in 1956, spawning a film, a soap opera, and a television series about gossipy, sexually charged, small-town conservative New Hampshire women. Probably not going to give that a read or watch any of that unless I have trouble sleeping. Uh, Herman was born into a wealthy family and never suffered financially as a child. Holmes' parents were devout Methodists and demanded total obedience. They controlled him, a control he would mirror in later killings. His mom, a schoolteacher prior to marriage, was described as cold and distant, someone who used religion as a daily guide for parenting. The good old spare the rod and spoil the child method of child rearing. Does that ever fucking work? Ever. Does that ever create happy, psychologically healthy adults? I doubt it. I've known a lot of people who survived in a, an intolerant, rigid, religious up, upbringing, and they are, without fail, always a bit more fucked up than the average bear. Uh, Herman's father, in particular, really didn't like to spare the rod, and bonus, he was a drunk. Sweet! The abusive Christian father who's also a drunk. That's the kind of dad every uh, kid dreams of. Hey, Dad, can you please get drunk and babble on about some incoherent Old Testament scripture you don't understand, and then beat me when I don't understand it either? Yay! Uh, Herman's father's uh, uh, harsh disciplinary tactics included prolonged isolation, even food deprivation. Remember that? Herman would mirror both of those treatments in later killings as well. Furthermore, his father uh, reportedly held kerosene-soaked rags over Holmes and the other children's mouths to quiet them when they cried. Uh, this behavior would also show up in, in Herman's future killings. What the fuck? <laughs> I, I actually, as a parent, I do get the urge... You know, when you're just exhausted and you're like, I just want them to shut the fuck up. Like when, they're, when your kid's a toddler and you're like, God, you know, if it didn't hurt them, just maybe, maybe a little chloroform just to kind of knock them down a bit, quiet them up. But who actually does that? H.H. H. Holmes' dad, that's who. Uh, during these instances of abuse by his father, Holmes, uh, Holmes found refuge in the forest near his home. And it was in the forest that he began dissecting animals. Killing them, developing his deviant fascination of things both dead and alive. Uh, that is a serial killer in the making right there. Uh, getting beat and frankly tortured by a drunk, abusive father. An emotionally distant mother who never helps you, just stands by, you know. He's having fire and brimstone shoved down his throat by both parents. And he knew how fucked up all this was because he was described as a hyper-intelligent child. You'll find out as this uh, story progresses, very, very intelligent. And, and then this kid, this really smart, kid, beaten kid, <laughs> uh, sneaks off to the woods to treat some little woodland creatures like he's being treated at home. Control them like he's being controlled. So now he's developing a taste for torture, control, and death. A hardening of the heart uh, towards the sanctity of life, all during his formative years. Dude is psychologically foobarred, fucked up beyond all recognition, for those of you not in the foobar know. So this abuse he suffers, combined uh, with, his, with his now shameful secret of killing little creatures, isolates young Herman from his peers. He becomes known as a very intelligent loner, the weird kid, the weird, creepy kid from school. And his early childhood experiences, uh, no doubt, uh, led to an instability to form meaningful relationships. Uh, his own abuse must have contributed to his penchant for lies, swindling, abusing others as an adult. Uh, side note, serial killers are six times more likely to have experienced physical abuse in their childhood than the average population. And Herman's abuse wasn't just limited to his home life. It gets even better. Uh, as a kid, Holmes was bullied and abused in school for his good grades and slightly odd demeanor. Um, slightly, probably super odd demeanor. 
Think about how much life sucks sometimes. You get beaten, harassed at home, which creates a paranoia and distrust of others that cause you to behave differently than the other kids at your school. And then because kids are dicks, you get beat and harassed by them at school too. Anyone who thinks there is any fairness in life is a fucking moron. I, I still feel guilt over picking on some kids I went to school with because I thought they were super weird. And they were. They definitely were. But it was probably just because their home life sucked. You know, they were just caught in a never-ending shitstorm of torment. I was just another spoke in the bully shit wheel of their life. Holmes recounted one of the most uh, memorable torments of his childhood as leading directly to his fascination with dead human bodies. Uh, one day after school, he's blindsided by some classmates who drag him, force him into a local doctor's office, where they took the hands of a skeleton. Doctor's offices had uh, real skeletons in these days. Uh, forcing the skeleton's hands uh, kind of on his face, you know, just, just tormenting with it. Uh, undoubtedly to his horrified little kid's screams. Holmes later uh, recalled that event uh, and said it was the reason uh, that made it, what got him curious about anatomy, um, about human anatomy, and which uh, later led him to pursue a degree at the University of Michigan Medical School in 1884. He also said it was the last time he'd be afraid of anything. Jesus. So this fascination with death uh, may have also led to an early murder. He didn't have many friends growing up, uh, you know, he did play in the woods with a local kid named Tom, though, who was a couple years older than he was. And one day, while exploring an abandoned home with Tom, Holmes recalled witnessing Tom die by falling off a landing. They were the only two kids out there. So, of course, there's going to be speculation that Holmes was, uh, you know, standing close enough behind Tom that he uh, may have pushed him intentionally. And based on what he did later as an adult, I I'm going to go 100% on young Herman pushing Tom just to see what the fuck would happen to him. Uh, I'm going to go 100% that he killed his little childhood friend. Okay, 1878. 1878, the young 17-year-old psychopath marries Clara Leverine of Alton, New Hampshire, the daughter, daughter of a wealthy local farmer. Uh, unfortunately for Clara, the marriage was probably just a way for Holmes to get some money. Uh, you're going to see this pattern uh, later in his life. And just get the hell away from his horrible parents. They did have a son, though, uh, a Robert Mudgett. <laughs> Robert Mudgett, that name just cracks me up. Mudgett, that's what a... Uh, if, you're, if your last name is Mudgett, I'm, that's, uh, that's terrible. Uh, born in 1880. Okay, well, a year later, after getting married, 1879, after graduating early from high school, Herman leaves Clara, enrolls in the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor. Uh, he uses Anna's family's money to pay for his tuition. Eventually, Anna and little Bobby Mudgett, well, they would join him. But then a short time later, after graduation from medical school, they'd return to New Hampshire and wouldn't see him for over 10 years. Man, that kid, again, that kid, man. What a fucking shit. Hey, everybody, it's Bobby Mudgett. Isn't your dad a crazy murderer? Isn't he a crazy murderer, Bobby Mudgett? wonder with a serial killer for a dad and a name like Bobby Mudgett that little Robert didn't also grow up to be a murderer. Uh, good thing they did go back to New Hampshire. If they would have followed Holmes to Chicago, the odds of either one of them living for very long would have been extremely low. So in medical school, Holmes' fascination with the dead grows. As he studies to become a doctor, he also studies to become a scary-as-fuck real-life monster. He begins to personally procure cadavers to study, dissect, use in his own research, he also figures out how to monetize corpses. He begins robbing local graves and morgues and selling the cadavers to medical schools or uh, utilizing them to swindle insurance companies or both. Uh, any fear he had uh, when, when those childhood bullies forced him to touch a skeleton are long, long gone at this point. And, uh, and selling skeletons is just the start of it, you know, how he makes money from the dead. Uh, you know, the, the insurance scams are the big one. Uh, he, he would con insurance companies by creating pseudonyms for himself, then naming himself as the beneficiary of a life insurance policy he would take out on a fictitious individual. Then he'd use a cadaver that he had disfigured to render it unrecognizable and claim the cadaver was the fictitious person he'd taken out the life insurance policy on. I have said it before. 
and I'll say it now, and I'm sure many more times in this podcast, God, it was easier to be a crook in the past than it is now. You could not pull off that shit no matter how smart you are now because there are dental records, fingerprint databases, birth certificates, social security numbers, all kinds of stuff used to identify a body. Uh, none of that shit existed back then. Not that I could have pulled it off either. Uh, Holmes was, uh, uh, you know, back then. Holmes was considered a brilliant student and also considered very attractive, mysterious, charismatic. Uh, he was basically like an old-time American psycho Christian Bale, if you've seen that movie. Oh, man. So, so during his time in medical school, Holmes has begun to ignore his wife and son back in New Hampshire, uh, but not until he received nearly $12,500 on one of his most successful early life insurance scams, he waits until he gets that money to abandon them completely. No longer needs the money. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, based on his own childhood, which we've uh, now heard about, he, he doesn't place a lot of value on family life. And, and he clearly doesn't enjoy just being beholden to anyone after being controlled as a kid. So now 1884. 1884, Holmes graduates from the University of Michigan Medical School, receives his MD, just a fine, outstanding young doctor who uses corpses to scam insurance companies and probably killed the only childhood friend who hung out with him. Go Wolverines! Herman then uses his new degree to create the lasting alias of Dr. Henry Howard Holmes which I got to say is way better than Dr. Herman Webster Mudgett. Uh, Dr. Mudgett, I got a, I got a hemorrhoid for you to check out. Can you look at my butt, Dr. Mudgett? Who could claim, you know, blame this guy? Again, yeah, HH, way better than Herman. You, I don't think you can be a criminal mastermind if your name is Herman. No one's going to take you seriously, you know? You're not going to inspire the proper fear and respect. You know, if you're henchmen, fucking talking to some kidnapped victim to say, oh, you, you wait, you wait until Herman gets here. <laughs> you, you won't be talking so brave when you have to face Herman. <laughs> Get out of here. Being a doctor was the perfect facade for Holmes. Gave him the access, tools, and resources he needed to continue killing for fun and profit. Dude would legitimately uh, soon be in the murder business, like on a regular basis. Uh, 1885, he's in Chicago. New wife and a new scam. Dr. Holmes moves to Chicago in 1885 to take a job as a pharmacist and quickly finds uh, time to bigamously marry the daughter of a well-to-do family in Wilmot, a wealthy suburb uh, north of Chicago. Here he sets another pattern for himself, the pyramiding of fraud upon credit. Uh, the details vary a little bit, but the main outlines of the scheme remain the same wherever Holmes uh, was the rest of his life. He would borrow some money with some worthless banknote and some skilled smooth talk enough money to buy some land. To repay the original loan, he would borrow against the lot from a local lender. Then he'd build a house or business in a highly frenetic and unscrupulous fashion, discharging workmen wrathfully, threatening litigation against subcontractors, sub uh, cajoling those he could not frighten. Uh, cajoling, uh, by the way, brings us to what, we may, what uh, may be my new favorite weekly segment, just a tiny little segment called the Time Suck Fancy Pants Word of the Day. Cajoling, verb, to persuade someone to do something by sustained coaxing or flattery. For example, Tom cajoled Susan into giving him a backseat hand job by continuously complimenting her on how soft her palms looked and how sexy her wrists were, until she finally jerked him off just to shut him up and get a ride back home from the movie theater parking lot. So there you go, time suckers. Now you know what cajole means. Now thanks to that example, you'll probably never forget it. Anywho, let's get back into that timeline. It's 1885. Dr. Holmes is perfecting his new con. You know, he tricks someone into lending him money, buys some land, repays the initial loan by borrowing against the land, builds on the land by taking advantage and conjoling 
cajoling contractors. And then uh, as soon as the roof was on, he would order huge quantities of furniture and other merchandise, all purchased on credit, of course, and then sell the furniture to pay off the contractors. And then by the time the furniture company gets around to repossessing the property, Holmes has sold the structure and the land the furniture was on, and he's fucking out of there. Again, how much easier was it uh, to be a crook back in the 19th century when people just couldn't hop on the web and easily track you down? That is crazy. He builds this entire business, buys this land, and just on a pyramid of frauds, then sells it to somebody, gets the real money, and then just gone. And then when people come back, like, hey, man, I need to get paid for that building, or hey, man, I need to get paid for all the furniture in that building, or (laughs) whatever, he's just out of there. Okay, 1885 to 1892, he just keeps working these scams. He's just scam after scam after scam, you know? And uh, he also has time to father uh, three more kids and establish himself in the Wilmot household as a solid citizen. His wife, of course, knows nothing about any of his uh, many criminal activities, which were rapidly becoming more numerous and more mysterious. How he explained to her his long absence is not recorded, but uh, I, I guess, you know, it, probably a pretty simple task for a dude of his agile imagination. I mean, Jesus. Uh, 1892... Uh, foundation of the murder castle. In 1892, Holmes transfers all his uh, criminal energies to the Englewood district of Chicago, centering on 63rd Street. It's there he would build his dark and morbid masterpiece and achieve lasting infamy. It's here he would build his murder castle. So let's pop on out of this timeline, take a closer look at Chicago in 1892, and then explore the murder castle in fascinating detail. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. All right, Chicago, 1890. Okay, so if you listen to the Valentine's Day Massacre episode of Time Suck, that's episode 22, you already know that late 19th century Chicago is pretty corrupt. You know, you got early Chicago gangster Michael McDonald. I keep forgetting I'm not in love anymore. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Taking it to the streets, taking it to the streets, taking it. Yeah, you get the idea. Old McDonald, he's sowing the seeds of early, uh, early organized crime. There's a lot of police, a lot of politicians, judges, etc., on the criminal dole. Criminal payroll, payroll fueled by a lot of vice, tons of gambling halls, whorehouses, and violence. So much so that after the world's Columbian Exposition, better known as the World's Fair of 1893, a massive reform movement would begin against this crime-riddled city. Uh, but it would take until 1914 to tempor- temporarily clean up all the illegal brothels. Many of which were, uh, I guess, fueled by underage sex slaves. Uh, this is important to understand and point out because uh, Chicago, at the end of the 19th century, not a good place for young women. They disappear all the time. They weren't as safe as they are today, not that they couldn't still be even safer. And it was, yeah, it was just a place where they could just, you know, just disappear unnoticed into sex slavery, into the murder castle, uh, especially in 1893 during the World's Fair when a shitload of people were pouring into Chicago and the murder castle was in full force. So let's talk about the World's Fair. May 1st, 1893, that's when the gates opened on the World's Columbian Exposition, meant to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus, uh, his first voyage to the New World, also known as as the Chicago's World's Fair. Over the next six months, more than 26 million visitors, 26 million people are flocking to the 600-acre fairgrounds, 200-plus buildings full of art, food, entertainment, technological gadgets, in the middle of a city that already had roughly 1.2 million people living in it. It was the second biggest city in the nation behind New York. After having only 5,000 people 50 years before. So a lot is going on. This city is, is frantically being built. A lot of buildings, homes, businesses springing up all over the place in the 1890s Chicago. 
Chicago had locked up the fair uh, on December 24th, 1890, wresting it from the other candidates of New York, St. Louis, and D.C. with a presidential proclamation from President Benjamin Harris. And so from 1890 to 1893, you know, again, the city is just being built at a chaotic rate to prepare for this big event. I mean, think about like when cities get ready for the Olympics. You know, this is the same kind of shit. You know, it's, it's, it's a, maybe even bigger in a way. Uh, yeah, and so hotels, you know, new stores, exhibits, they're going over all over the city. And that's why he was able to kind of, Holmes, you know, sneak in his little fucking disgusting building. Uh, so our October 9, uh, 1893, the day designated as Chicago Day, check this out, how many people are pouring in. The fair set a world record for an outdoor event. Uh, they drew 751,026 people in one day coming into the fair. That's a murderer's dream, man. So many victims. The fair, by the way, produced a number of uh, firsts. It was a, you know, kind of a historic fair. Uh, it could probably be uh, a time suck in and of itself. Among the well-loved commercial products that made their debut at the Chicago World's Fair were cream of wheat. I love me some cream of wheat, by the way. Love a little cream of wheat. Make a little cream of wheat. Yeah, a little fucking milk. A little brown sugar. And, uh, and you just have a simple, just gruel, like a tasty gruel of a breakfast. A lot of people find it disgusting. Uh, I find it comforting. Because my grandma Betty made me some cream of wheat, making me cream of wheat. Uh, there's Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. PBRs, all right, I like a little PBR, it's a little hipstery, I know, but I think it's some of the best cheap uh, Pilsner, like domestic Pilsner, you know, on the planet, I like it, it's kind of sweet, maybe PBR and cream of wheat, maybe that's a meal I should try, uh, Wrigley's Chewing Gum and Cracker Jacks, they were born at the fair, I used to like me a Cracker Jack, get my little, get my little fucking shitty magnifying glass, or, you know, shitty little kid tattoo in the bottom of the Cracker Jack, uh, technological products that would soon find their way into homes nationwide included the dishwasher, Fluorescent light bulbs. The U.S. government issued the country's first postcards. That's right, postcards. You've heard of them. Uh, commemorative stamps for you fucking dorky stamp collectors out there. You probably, are, if, yeah, if you're a stamp collector dork, you already know about uh, World's Fair. The first Ferris wheel made its debut at the fair. The long-awaited invention of Pittsburgh-based bridge builder and steel magnet George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. Fuck, people loved a long name back then. What a pretentious... <laughs> Dipshit that guy was. I don't care how successful he was. I hope I, I, if he introduced himself that way. Can you imagine? I guess it's a different era. Hello, I am George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. Uh, how about just George? How about let's just go with George there. Calm down, buddy. Uh, well, uh, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. intended to rival the highlight of the 1889 fair in Paris, the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so he made a Ferris wheel. Ah, Ferris wheels are cool. I don't think it holds up to the Eiffel Tower. You know, you got people, that's like a lifetime bucket list, man. I want to go to Paris, check out the Eiffel Tower. I've, I mean, I know people who like Ferris wheels, but, you know, I've, I've never heard anybody like, man, just before I die, before I die, I just hope I can take one ride in a Ferris wheel. Well, anyway, it was a big deal then. It was 264 feet tall. It was an engineering marvel. It could fit 2,160 people at a time. That's a big Ferris wheel. It cost 50 cents to ride, twice the price of admission to the fair itself. It was so popular, it was moved to Chicago's north side, where it remained in operation for 10 years before it was sold to the organizers of the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, just people flocking everywhere for this Ferris wheel. Over 120 years later, an American comedian would use the Ferris wheel, uh, visual, as inspiration for a dark comedic bit about gun control involving a dead squirrel puppet. Reference to my own material. Okay, but I digress. Back to the timeline. 1892. I guess we're not really in the timeline anymore. But, you know, back to, this, back to the story, back to the narrative. 
uh, in the middle of this hustling, bustling, somewhat vice-filled pre-expo Chicago of 1892, Holmes, he builds his murder castle. He knew, you know, flocks of people, including lots of young women, are going to be pouring in the city. He knew there's a lot of money to be made in their corpses, a lot of killing to be done in the chaos. He had to have known. He's a sick guy, but he's a smart guy. Was, you know, the expo provides the perfect draft backdrop to quietly build an evil lair. Hotels and other accommodations are being built all over town at a rapid rate. His was just another new big building amongst many. So to get the money he needed to build what would be an elaborate estate of torture and death, you know, he went back to his cons, you know, took his con, took his con game to the next level, went full con, full swindle, borrowed money from creditors to begin construction, then borrowed money, you know, from other creditors to pay those first creditors back, like a young Bertie Madoff working some Ponzi schemes. From his drugstore on the ground floor, which he completed first, he would sell just nonsense, uh, surefire snake charmer cures for, like, alcoholism, which was just fucking, like, water and some other bullshit he'd throw, <laughs> throw in the water. He sold, uh... Uh, this, cause this is before the, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 and the beginnings of the FDA. You could sell fucking anything in a drugstore in the 1890s. Uh, he opened up a restaurant, sold that before, outfitting, before the outfitting company could repossess the fixtures after banking hours. Uh, one time a, a citizen came to the drugstore to get large bills for $178 in small change. Holmes gave him a worthless personal check, stalled him off for two years. I mean, he's working every angle, man. He'll give you a bad check for a jar of nickels. He's, he's working the jar of nickels swindle. He's full swindle, grabbing that nickel money. Then he, then he sold a, a drugstore, a different one he'd purchased through some other cons by mis, mis, yeah, misrepresenting the volume of business. He had bought this one across the street. Uh, to substantiate his claims, he hired uh, various people to stream into the store and make expensive purchases. God, he loved a con, man. Another time, <laughs> another time he bought a large safe, moved it into a small room of the castle, narrowed the size of the room's door, refused to pay for the safe, and invited the owner to repossess it. <laughs> but warned him not to damage the house. Oh, what a dick. Uh, he invented a machine which made illuminating gas out of water. He demonstrated successfully to an expert uh, who could not discover in the Rube Goldberg maze of pipes, pulleys, wires, and other gadgets that the one pipe which tapped the gas company's mains was the one doing it, not the machine. Uh, aided by the expert's endorsement, Holmes sold his invention, which looked like a washing machine on stilts, to some Canadian for 2000 bucks. He's, he's making that fake invention money. Uh, when the invention was removed from the basement, a hole remained. And then Holmes decides that he's discovered a miraculous mineral spring. He piped the healing potion upstairs to his drugstore and retailed it successfully at five cents a glass. Talk about lemonade from lemons. Hole in the basement? Nah, don't even patch it up. It's mineral-laden spring now. Who knew Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth was in a Chicago drugstore basement the whole time? Perhaps his most spectacular swindle during this period of building the murder castle, involves uh, some furnishings of the castle. This is, this is some next-level shit. This is unbelievable. Uh, he, check this out. This dude, he buys truckloads of furniture, mattresses, bed springs, hardware, gas fixtures. Uh, gas fixtures, a sinister item he would use again later, it turns out. Uh, he has all this delivered to the castle at 63rd Street. The Toby Furniture Company, unpaid a week later, to get a little anxious about losing all their money on this unpaid furniture, they dispatch a collections agent to talk to him and to keep an eye on the house, make sure he doesn't try and sneak out with the furniture as they're trying to get their payment back. You know, and uh, Holmes' uh, usual tactics of cajolery failed. Remember that word? Oh, he's cajoling. He's cajoling them. And uh, so the company, they send vans, some brawny moving men to repossess their property. They get into the castle and they find the place completely empty. Yet the company's own agent, the collections agent, swore no furniture had been taken out. He's been doing a stakeout. And he was right. No furniture had been taken out. It had, it had been taken in. He took it in. The castle would swallow the furniture as it later swallowed young women. 
all right? A, a janitor uh, uh, at the castle later gave up uh, the con for a $25 bribe. Uh, and this is, what it, this is what happened. Holmes had moved all of the furniture into one giant room, taken out the door frame, and bricked up the door and papered the wall. So you go in there, and there's just fucking nothing. He, just, he hid it in a room that you can't even tell is a room anymore. How much, a, how much of a smooth talker was this guy? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know you gave me the furniture on credit, and, and, and clearly, <laughs> clearly you took it back. Because, I mean, it's not here, is it? I mean, it's not here. Your own collection agent, he didn't see anyone take it. If you didn't take it back yourself, you, you tell me what happened. I mean, what did, what did the house swallow it up? <laughs> what do you? Uh, unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> it amazes me that he was able to keep um, uh, some of the details of the, of the castle a secret and how he did this, uh, like all these trap doors and basically murder rooms, is he used a ton of different people to build it. So only he actually knew the layout of the castle because he just constantly, as we said before in one of those cons, you know, he just constantly fired people. He would just fire like contractors, usually within a few weeks of hiring them. And uh, there's even some rumors that he murdered a number of construction workers, you know, and hid and got rid of their bodies in the very b- building they were working on. He was a master con artist. And, uh, and how did he continuously run all of these scams? I guess a combination of just rapier wit and no morality. He just had no qualms about conning people, and he was hyper-intelligent. He was born with charm and good looks. He was a master manipulator. Eric Larson, a uh, fantastic author, author of the book on H.H. H. Holmes, Devil in the White City, said, quote, you wouldn't know it from looking at him, but people thought he was incredibly handsome. Apparently, he had that magnetic thing that psychopaths have. And I will have a picture up of him, uh, again, at timesuckpodcast.com, so you can see for yourself. He, he looks like an old-timey handsome, I guess. You know, it's hard not to think about how creepy he was when you see the picture, and so you're like, yeah, that looks like a killer. You also think that, but if, if you've just seen that picture and... He wasn't a killer. He looks almost kind of like a gunslinger or something. I don't know. Well, even more impressive in a sick and twisted way, uh, the whole time he's running all these scams, building his castle, doing all these crazy things, he's also keeping his wife, who lives in another part of Chicago, happy. Remember, he had the first wife still back in New Hampshire. They have a, a loose relationship. They never actually officially get divorced. Uh, he has three kids with a woman in Chicago. He, he also then, So then he takes a new mistress on top of those two women, who, along with her eight-year-old daughter, uh, lives with him in the castle, Mrs. Julia Connor, a woman who will soon murder. Uh, apparently, his mistress was jealous of the other women he's sleeping with. So think about that. He's got the wife in the suburbs. He's got the mistress in the castle. He is sleeping with other women in the castle. Uh, <laughs> and to keep from getting caught with these other women, he does stuff like he has a step removed from the stairs leading up to Julia's apartment and replaces it with this step that has a built-in electric-like buzzer underneath that quietly sets off an alarm he can hear in other parts of the home how fucking crazy is that he's like jigsaw from the saw movies just would you like to play a game would you like to play a game oh my god he's got booby traps he's got booby twaps for you goonies fans and uh, this was just the beginning of a whole system of alarms he'd have installed to keep his victims from escaping two wives mistress multiple other affairs tons of scams and pretty soon he'll be working murder into the mix like uh, at a rapid rate unreal organization skills. If he could have just applied himself in the right way, God knows what good he could have done. Uh, also in 1892, H.H. Holmes found time to head to Texas. Why not in the middle of that? Just take a little trip to Texas. He meets a woman named Minnie Williams, a woman who'd later become another wife of Holmes and another victim. He also met uh, Benjamin F. Peitzel, a man who would become his murder castle henchman and later victim himself. That's right. He even had an evil henchman, someone who, who would help him dispose of bodies, keep his secret safe, He's a fucking evil mastermind. Uh, and then ironically, it would be his henchman, Peitzel, it would be Peitzel's death that he would be sentenced for, uh, <laughs> convicted and hung for, a crime completely unrelated to his murders at the Chicago Castle. 
So the castle was completed sometime in 1892. An actual record of the completion doesn't exist. I mean, you know, dude wasn't really into keeping firm records of his torture chambers. He's not going to file that paperwork down at City Hall. Just, uh, excuse me, uh, I, I just finished building an elaborate murder factory on some property I stole money from to purchase using laborers I also swindled. Uh, it has a bunch of torture rooms, uh, has, a, has a kiln, has a, has a quicklime pit for erasing any trace of my many, many murderous crimes. Uh, where, where does that file go? Oh, uh, the murder factory office on, on the fifth floor? <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Can I have one of these mints? Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, his reign as king of the murder castle won't last long. Holmes is going to slip out of town the very next year at the end of 1893, but not from police, from angry creditors. But before doing so, some historians estimate roughly 200 souls left their bodies in hideous fashion in his terrifying house of death. And now let's explore this house of death in some detail with some super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. Okay, first, how did he, you know, get these future victims into the murder castle? How did he lure them? Uh, Holmes used two major pretenses to lure guests who checked in and never checked out. First, he advertised lodging for tourists visiting the World's Fair. Second, he would place classified ads in various small-town newspapers around the Midwest offering jobs to young women or outright offering himself for marriage. And then when the job ads, for example, were answered, he would describe several jobs in detail and explain that the woman would have her choice of positions at the time of the interview. Uh, when they accepted, uh, the woman would be instructed to pack her things and withdraw all of her money from the bank because, you know, she needs some funds to get started in her new life. The applicants were also instructed to keep the location and the name of his company a closely guarded secret because he had devious competitors who would use any information possible to steal his clients from him. Got to keep quiet. You know, when the young woman arrived and Holmes was convinced that she had told no one of her destination, she would become his fucking prisoner. He was a sadist. Oh, this guy. I'm going to get into that very soon. Uh, Holmes all placed uh, newspaper ads for marriage as well, describing himself as a wealthy businessman who was searching for a suitable wife. Those who answered this ad would get a similar story to the job offer. Uh, Holmes then most likely just tortured these women to learn about the whereabouts of his uh, any valuables they might have. The young ladies would then remain his prisoners until he decided to dispose of them. And, and one can only surmise he did the same thing with uh, guests. You know, traveling alone? Didn't tell your family where you're staying? Oh, you're a young woman? I could easily physically overpower? All right, you're the perfect uh, murder castle guest. And that's how this fucking predator lured victims into this murder castle. Also, uh, again, working in Holmes' favor, you know, was the World's Fair. The unsophisticated police procedures of the day, missing persons cases, for example, were barely investigated. Holmes' innate charm could smooth over any remaining questions from neighbors and families who did figure out their daughter or sister came to the castle. He had all kinds of stories for the police and these families. He claimed his female assistant went out of town to visit relatives, ended up staying, or his new fiance just eloped with someone else in secret. Sorry, I don't know where she is. I think Europe, you know. Maybe uh, you say he, he'd administered a botched abortion to, to his girlfriend that unfortunately took his life, you know, or, or took her life, excuse me, et cetera, et cetera. He had all kinds of stories. Smooth talking dude. So that's how these women got here, and that's how Holmes would cover up their disappearances. But how did they die? Let's talk about what we know, and then we can and then talk about what we can reasonably kind of speculate from what we do, what we know. One thing we know is the layout of the second floor. I'll have an illustration of this layout available at timesuckpodcast.com. We don't have any pictures of the interior because a fire burned up the second and third floors in 1895, and then the building was completely torn down in 1938 to make way for the Inglewood Post Office that sits there to this day. But there were roughly 15 rooms dedicated to torture and death on the second floor, and then another 15 or so legitimate guest rooms. The death rooms, uh, the police referred to as the dark room. 
the asphyxiation room, the room of the three corpses, the black closet, the hanging room, the sealed room, the five-door room, the maze, and the blind room. God, talk about a hotel you would never want to stay at. Would you care to upgrade your room this weekend? Uh, For only $20 a night, you can stay in the hanging room. Or perhaps you'd like to pay only $50 a night to stay in the room with the three corpses. It's the perfect room for those who don't like to spend the night alone. (laughs) Ah, All these rooms are soundproofed. The asphyxiation room was equipped with gas lines controlled from the other side of the wall. One room, the sealed room, was completely walled in with brick and could only be entered through a trap door in the ceiling. Uh, Doors to these rooms were rigged with alarms that alerted homes to the potential escape of a prisoner. Some of these rooms had peepholes so he could listen to his new prisoners and watch them beg for mercy, watch them die. Man, you know, you know you're fucked up if you end up in a hotel. You wake up in a hotel room with no doors. You know, the maid is not coming up to let you out of that one. And again, if prisoners did somehow escape, you know, the alarm would, you know, set off, be set off so homes would hear about it. And they'd have a hard time getting away because there were staircases that led to nowhere, hallways leading to dead ends, mazes leading them back to where they started. The nonsense layout of the passageways was very hard to navigate. Plus, homes had sliding walls to further, further confuse and trap victims. It was a nightmarish labyrinth he had very carefully constructed. In the asphyxiation room, Holmes could asphyxiate, uh, asphyxiate his prisoners with gas, or he could ignite the gas and incinerate them, just burn them alive. He could privately hang them, just watch them twist and struggle for their final breaths. He could leave them in the sealed room, just let them die of starvation or thirst. You know, some of the rooms were made completely airtight, so he just let his victims run out of air. Once dead, the bodies were placed in a dummy elevator, dropped in a secret metal chute, led to the basement. You know, Holmes or his, his henchman, Peitzel, fucking throw him down there. God, so dark, man. FYI, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio signed on to play H.H. Holmes in a movie about the monster based on Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City, uh, currently allegedly being scripted, and Martin Scorsese is rumored to be lined up to direct it. If that happens, this movie will be fucking huge. The guy's story is so darkly captivating. And think about, again, earlier, like, like how he's just mirroring these, these childhood things. Remember, his dad did a lot of this stuff to him. You know, starved, isolated. Oh, man. Oh, God. Okay. So how did he get these women into the rooms? Here we have to speculate a little bit, because Holmes never gave an honest confession to his castle crimes. He just kept twisting the truth, manipulating and deceiving until the very end, and no one got to interview Peitzel, his henchman, about the crimes, because Holmes killed him before he got the chance to talk. More on that later. Uh, in all likelihood, Holmes entered the guest's actual boarding rooms on the second floor through a variety of secret passages, trap doors, sliding walls, and the like. The castle was littered with secret entries. So as these women slept, he'd sneak and knock them out with some chloroform. Again, remember that from his childhood? Dad used to quiet him down with a kerosene rag? Oh, not a coincidence he's doing the same shit now to these victims. Exactly what happened to all of H.H. Holmes' victims will forever be a mystery, uh, as, as will how many you know, victims there were. Because he had an incinerator, he had this kiln in the basement where he could turn their bodies to ash, and he also had a quicklime pit, you know, in the, for dissolving the bones. He also had various medical tools he used to dissect cadavers and, and strip them down to their skeletons. He'd sell the skeletons to universities, you know, to doctors. It was popular at the time to display uh, skeletons in doctors' offices. You know, and he was doing that before, remember, in medical school, except now he didn't go need to, he didn't need to rob graves. He had a, he had a skeleton assembly line going on. So how many skeletons around Chicago in the 1890s actually belonged to women who had been killed in the castle? Again, a few hundred women are estimated to have disappeared in Chicago around that time. Now, we'll never know the exact number, but guessing a lot of them ended up in the castle. Uh, did he torture these women before killing them? I'm going to say probably. Again, there was no confession. We won't know for sure, but why the fuck else would you have all these different rooms with these different sadistic methods of killing people? 
You know, if it was just about money, all the rooms would be the same. Just be like an, an asphyxiation room, you know, do it the most efficient way, open up the trap door, you know, get your skeleton, corpse, whatever you needed downstairs, and then go make your life insurance or, you know, skeleton selling money. But no, man, he's, he's, he also had a, a, a homemade medieval torture rack, like a stretching rack for stretching victims down the cellar. And that's not one of those things where, like, your hands or your arms are up above your head. You're, you know, you're just, like, laid out flat, and you have shackles on your wrists and shackles on your ankles, and then there's, like, a crank, and you can just crank it and just literally just stretch the person until you just fucking rip somebody apart. Why did he have that? Uh, speculation, you know, that maybe he stretched women until they told him where all their money was. You know, was he doing it for fun? Did Peitzel, his henchman, help with the actual killing? Did he or his henchman rape him? Uh, we'll never know for sure on that either, but I don't think so. He was never accused of rape. He never had any problems sexually with women. None of his crimes ever seemed sexual. I feel like he was just motivated by money uh, and morbid curiosity and control. Again, mirroring the things of his childhood. You know, he was never molested or anything, but he was, you know, uh, again, uh, isolated, starved, that kind of stuff by his dad. And now he's fucking doing this to other people. What a weird cycle. Uh, imagine he cut people up, hung them, asphyxiated them. Uh, yeah, he just wanted to exert control, man. Ah, but but again, not, none of this is known. This is complete armchair psychology going on here, based on the facts that I've read. And uh, and Holmes is also suspected of killing more than women. This guy was such a monster. Uh, it's possible again. Remember, I said earlier he killed some of the construction workers who helped build the castle. You know, when they wouldn't leave him alone about that whole wanting to get paid for services rendered thingy. He allegedly killed children as well. The first child he's suspected of killing as an adult, remember that speculation uh, about his boyhood friend, is the eight-year-old daughter of his first mistress to live in the castle, Mrs. Connor. Bones of at least one child were later found partially dissolved in the quicklime pit in the castle cellar. Mrs. Connor and her daughter both disappeared forever shortly before a new mistress, Minnie Williams, the woman he met in Texas, uh, a young orphaned woman uh, who had a little family money, uh, arrived to replace her. Minnie uh, had recently met a young doctor, Harry Gordon. She described as wealthy, handsome, and highly intelligent down in Texas. And that doctor, of course, was H.H. Holmes. And then, of course, a few months after Minnie arrives in Chicago, uh, her sister Anna joins her, another woman he could get some money from. A few months after that, both Anna and Minnie disappears forever, never to be heard from again, either one of them. And, be, and they would be replaced uh, by a series of new mistresses, uh, such as Emily Van Tassel, uh, Emmeline Sagrand, all of whom would disappear forever, all of whom would meet and be destroyed by the man who described himself as, quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help inspiration to sing. It's fucking weird. That's, I don't know. Uh, I didn't know what poets sang, but I, I get what he's saying. He's saying, uh, and that is some super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. Okay, so, uh, you know, that's what we know, uh, that's what I assume went on in the castle, and whatever the hell was really going on there in 1893 probably would have went on a lot longer if it hadn't been for creditors, it was creditors, again, not police who chased Holmes out of Chicago, he owed between 25 and 50 grand to a variety of people who had finally figured out that he was full of shit, and, uh, and they met up with each other, and then they confronted him in mass in late 1893, and he wasn't able to sweet talk his way out of anything anymore. And when they threatened to go and demand a warrant for his arrest, he knew he had to take off. The last thing he needs at this time was the police poking around the murder castle and fingering him for a lot more serious crimes. So he initially, he fled to uh, Denver, where he quickly wed another beautiful young woman of wealth, Georgie Anna Yoke. I mean, dude moved fast with women. So many ways. Gonna take advantage of them, make, that, make mama pay for never protecting him when he was a kid. For just standing by while daddy beat him. 
Uh, women were going to forever suffer at his hands because of what I think uh, he had serious mommy issues. Again, armchair psychology there. That's what I think. And then by uh, June of 1894, Georgiana was using her money to try and get her new husband out of jail in St. Louis, where he'd been arrested for stealing horses in Texas, shipping them to St. Louis, and trying to sell them there. The fucking cons this guy came up with. He's, it's like he just never ran across a swindle he didn't like. Like, horse thievery? Yeah, why not? He could have made a decent living as a doctor, but clearly that didn't give him the adrenaline rush that these crimes did. Uh, it, was in, it was in jail for, for horse thievery uh, where Holmes would make the mistake that would lead to his eventual complete downfall, downfall and, uh, and death. Before he was released on bail, he tried to set up a scam with another inmate, Marion Hedgepeth. Uh, Holmes said he would take out an insurance policy for $10,000, fake his own death, and then he could provide Hedgepeth with $500 in exchange for a lawyer who could help him uh, if any problems arose with this particular scam in St. Louis. And then once Holmes is released from jail on bail, he attempts his plans. However, uh, the insurance company is suspicious, and they don't pay him. So then he goes and decides to attempt a similar plan in, in Philadelphia. This time he's going to have his henchman, Peitzel, fake his death. However, during the scam, uh, Holmes, I guess, just decides, ah, fuck it, why don't I just kill him? Why don't I just actually kill him? I'd rather have this guy who knows all my secrets dead anyway. So he kills him, sets his corpse on fire, tries to collect the money for himself. All that after the guy fled to continue to work with Holmes, so much for, for a henchman's enduring loyalty. Well, uh, in 1894, um, so yeah, so he tries the, the, the Philly thing to collect the money. And in 1894, former Holmes cellmate Marion Hedgepeth is angry that he didn't receive any money in the initial scam. He tells police about the scam Holmes had planned. The police track Holmes, finally catch him in Boston, where they arrest him and, and hold him on an outstanding warrant for the initial Texas horse swindle. Remember all the shit this guy does, all the scams he runs, and all the situations he talks himself out of, and it's just a couple of goddamn horses that, you know, he took from Texas that he can't get away from. So he's captured in Boston, and then the new charge of insurance fraud is thrown at him for the Peitzel murder in Philadelphia because that one, that one doesn't work either. The, the scam of the insurance company is, is leery, and then uh, he, <laughs> they do some investigation. It just doesn't add up, so he's transferred there, and then the story about Peitzel, Peitzel dies doesn't make sense. He's charged with the henchman's murder. Again, how strange. And I guess it was something about um, how uh, he tried to like, make it look like the guy had like, knocked himself out before. It was something with chloroform, where the autopsy basically like, he either put chloroform before or after, but it didn't make sense for the fire. I think it was that he, he got burned, and then after he was dead, had chloroform put on his body. And that was uh, the little slip-up that got uh, Holmes charged with murder. All the people this guy kills. And the one murder he's actually charged with is the murder of the guy who helped him murder. <laughs> his fucking henchman. Uh, at the time of his arrest, uh, Holmes appeared as if he was prepared to flee the country. Uh, police became suspicious of him. Chicago police investigate Holmes' castle. You know, now they're tracking down previous places this guy has been, you know, as they're trying to determine did he for sure kill Peitzel. You know, a lot of shit just seemed weird. Uh, they find the castle where they discover his strange and efficient methods for committing the tortures and the murders. Uh, many of the bodies they found uh, were, were so badly dismembered and decomposed, it was hard for them to determine exactly how many you know, bodies there actually were, just bits and pieces of various people. Uh, the police investi investigation spread through Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, some uh, cities he'd fled to while hiding from various creditors and investigators. And check this nonsense out. While he was on the run before being captured, he traveled not only with his new wife, Georgie Anna Yoke, but also with the widow of his recently killed henchman, Peitzel, and the five Peitzel children. I guess Mrs. Peitzel uh, had no knowledge of Georgie and vice versa, even though they would sometimes travel in the same train. Like he'd sit with his wife for a bit, then he'd go down to the next box car, sit with Mrs. Uh, Peitzel, who I'm assuming very much wanted to know where her husband had disappeared to and wanted to, and probably knew about the scam, wanted her chunk of change from the scam. Uh, unbeknownst to Mrs. Peitzel, uh, he was still using her for some scams. He had deeded various properties to Mr. Peitzel, his henchman, 
and then needed uh, her help to collect on those because she was the beneficiary uh, of some of those, you know, if, if he disappears, some of those properties and the beneficiary of the life insurance policy he'd taken out on Mr. Peisel, you know, again, who he just killed. It's fucking, he's, he's so fucking confusing. He's got so many scams all the time. Uh, he also manages to visit his original wife and children back in New Hampshire at this time, spend a little time with them. You know, they never got divorced, like I said. Uh, he, also, uh, he also kills some of Peitzel's kids before getting caught. Kills three of them. Kills three of the five during the travels. Investigators later find two of their corpses in the basement of a Toronto home he had stayed in while he was there. Another one in an Indianapolis basement. I guess uh, the other two kids lived. Maybe they were the quiet ones who didn't give him any fuss. And if you're fucking confused by all of this, me too. Me too. And so was anyone who attempted to write a record of his life. The guy ran so many scams. He was constantly involved with so many women, continually running Ponzi schemes and fucking swindles, just constantly. I have no idea how he kept track of everything. Clearly, again, as evil as he was, he was so intelligent, but also really stupid. Like, if you're capable of simultaneously deceiving so many people constantly for profit, couldn't you just make that much more money if you just focused all that intelligence in, like, one business plan, one consistent and legitimate direction? Again, it's like he just preferred to make his money nefariously. He must have just gotten off on it. Well, Holmes' trial lasts only five days in October of 1895, and H.H. Holmes, a.k.a. Herman Webster Mudgett, uh, is found overwhelmingly guilty of Peitzel's murder and then hung in May of 1896. Check this out, his uh, his final moments. After a uh, uh, a 10.30 a.m. on May 7th, 1896, after a breakfast of boiled eggs, dried toast, and coffee, kept it simple, Holmes was escorted to the gallows at uh, Moamentin Prison in Philadelphia. Uh, these fucking words. It's M-O-Y-A-M-E-N-S-I-N-G. Moamensing. Uh, until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and collected, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. To his executioner, Holmes spoke his last words. Quote, take your time, old man. Holmes' neck uh, didn't snap. Instead, he was strangled to death slowly. How fitting is that? twitching over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. Oh, and that is roughly all we know about H.H. Holmes and the murder castle. Those are the highlights. If such, a, if such a term as highlight applies to such horrific acts, we can't learn any more about the murder castle itself, uh, again, because it was badly damaged in a fire the year before Holmes' death, and, and now long since completely destroyed. Uh, legend has it, the last caretaker of the hotel, which apparently remained in operation for a brief period after Holmes fled Chicago, committed suicide, his family claiming he was haunted for weeks prior to killing himself. And we can't learn much more about Holmes because he never gave a decent, honest interview before his death. He never really gave an honest fucking confession about anything. He was constantly lying about everything. Uh, he finally admitted to killing 27 people, but some of the people he confessed to killing were later determined to still be alive. I mean, I'm guessing he was just working some con angle right until the bitter end, trying to, you know, keep from getting hung. So that's it, man. That is H.H. Holmes. Uh, brilliant and stupid, uh, but so ev- so darkly brilliant, I mean, to, to pull off so many different things. But what a fucking monster, man. What a fu- fucking monster. And so many mysteries will remain about him forever. What actually went on at that horrific murder castle? But just the fact that somebody had a murder castle, and, and, and not back in medieval times, but in this country, not really that long ago, is just terrifying, man. He is one of the most terrifying people I have ever read about, for sure. So, so let's hit, the, let's hit uh, the most memorable moments one more time, and then get the hell out of here. Get the hell away from this darkness after some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
Number one, H.H. Holmes not only built a murder castle in the middle of Chicago, complete with trap doors, an asphyxiation room, a maze, sliding doors, walled-off rooms, an alarm system, and chutes to the cellar where various body disposal resources awaited, he built it with money he had scammed from creditors, construction workers, and furniture salesmen. Number two, H.H. Holmes had a henchman, an evil henchman. Who has an evil henchman? Bundy? No. Gacy? No. Dahmer? Uh Uh-uh. Holmes. And then he killed him. And then he was hung for killing him. Number three, the 1893 Chicago's World's Fair not only gave a murderer a perfect backdrop for killing tons of newcomers to the city, it also gave us the Ferris wheel. So thanks, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. Number four, if you don't want to raise a future serial killer, don't knock your kids out with a kerosene rag when they're too noisy. Don't beat them, don't lock them in a room, and don't starve them. And if you do end up doing all those things, don't then get drunk and ramble on about the Bible like Holmes' dad did. And number five, DiCaprio and Scorsese are reportedly teaming up for another movie about none other than H.H. Holmes and the bloody summer of 1893. If you thought The Departed was good, and I do, oh, I do, this movie is going to be off the charts. Please let me play the henchman. I'll be Spitzel. If you're listening, if you're listening, casting director or Scorsese, I'll be a good Spitzel. I can be creepy, you know? Yes, Dr. Holmes. Yes, anything anything you say, Dr. Holmes. Yes, I'll, I'll talk to the furniture people, Dr. Holmes, as, as you wish. Uh, happy to happy to fix the trap door, Dr. Holmes. Yes, yeah. I'll put the body in the, in the kiln. Yes, Dr. Holmes. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Hopefully that wasn't uh, too weird there with the henchman. I hope, you, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. As always, I, I hope these are getting better. I'm definitely trying to make them so. Uh, bonus episode coming out this Friday. Thanks to everyone who reviewed the podcast on iTunes and for pushing it over 300 reviews. The Rise of Hitler and the Third Reich. Fascinating and terrifying stuff. Not sure what the next bonus episode is going to be. I can tell you next week it's not going to be about a murderer. I need a break. I need a break from the darkness, man. All this shit. Hitler, H.H. Holmes. Ugh. Uh, I'll try and figure that out uh, in time for next week's episode, figure out what the bonus one's going to be. Next, need to go through all the recent suggestions still. And thanks for sending in all those episode suggestions uh, at admin at timesuckpodcast.com from the website. And if you haven't already picked it up, give my, uh, my, my buddy Chad Daniels his new CD. He has a great new CD out on iTunes and elsewhere called Footprints on the Moon. So funny, man. And I'm excited Time Suck t-shirts are coming soon. They are coming soon. Get in the online store set up at timesuckpodcast.com. And, and they look great, man. Soft, sensual cotton blend. Luxurious even. These aren't, these aren't those fucking cheapy gliding t-shirts. Those shitty ones that, you know, you get at fundraisers. These are, these are the good stuff. Soft. A little form-fitting even. And if you want to uh, know what the next episode of Time Suck will be before it comes out, Please follow me on either Twitter at D underscore Cummins, on Facebook or Instagram at Dan Cummins Comedy. And, uh, and I also post tour dates there and at uh, www.dancummins.tv. You can link there from timesuckpodcast.com. I'll be at Charlie Goodnights this week in Raleigh, North Carolina, March 9 through 11. I'll be at Hyenas in Dallas, March 16 through 18, Jacksonville, Florida at the new Comedy Club of Jacksonville, March 23rd through 25th. And I'll be in Hilarities, uh, one of my favorite clubs in Cleveland, Ohio. April 14th through 16th, again, full tour calendar available at dancummins.tv, or you can just link from timesuckpodcast.com, where pictures uh, correlating to this episode will also be located, as will the archives of all the episodes. So have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to some homes, and keep on sucking. Keep 
sucking. I keep on sucking some more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite? Call your mom? Take judo lessons? Finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.